Hello and welcome to the HB podcast on emerging issues in litigation and risk. This is Tom Hagee with HB. When we were preparing for the first issue of the Journal on Emerging Issues in Litigation, which is due out in 2021, it's due out in January 2021, I came across a guy whose title was one I'd never seen before, uh, Vice President, I've, I've heard of that, but Emerging Issues Officer. So with a title like that, I knew he would be a perfect victim or contributor for a project like this. Uh, Charlie Kingdollar is now retired after more than 30 years at Gen Re. Could actually be 40 years, but uh, if his LinkedIn profile is correct. But the point is, is not the mass. The point is, this was his life, and for many years it was mine too. Um, and when I was a uh, publisher and editor at Mealy's Litigation Reports, if you follow Charlie on LinkedIn, you know that he continues to keep an eye on emerging risks. So I was thrilled to get an article from him, which we will discuss, and to get him on the phone for this podcast. We talk about social media and how it has increased the risk of disparagement. We talk about what the insurance industry is or isn't doing about it, or maybe what it should be doing, and why, if you were going to disparage a plumbing company that I ran, you would probably have every right to do so. So here it is, my conversation with Charlie Kingdollar, former Emerging Issues Officer at General Reinsurance. I hope you enjoy it. So so to get started, uh, you had what seemed like a pretty interesting uh, job in your career. So can you tell us tell us about that? What did you focus on? Well, yeah, I worked for General Reed for nearly 40 years and for some 33 years of that, I was in charge of emerging issues, uh, analyzing how emerging issues will impact Genry, Genry's clients, and the property casualty insurance industry as a whole. And emerging issues are things that underwriters likely did not consider when underwriting a risk. There's no data on emerging issues generally. I mean, eventually, as emerging issues begin to emerge, data becomes uh, clear. But up until that point, um, people may be kind of writing things when they don't really fully understand the exposure. Okay, so so you were you were monitoring a number of emerging issues at once. It seems so. How, how many? Yes, uh, you looking at? when I left, we were monitoring what we considered to be a couple of hundred emerging issues, but it really depends on how you divide them up. I mean, for me, for instance, nanomaterials or nanotechnology, that was one emerging issue where other people will look at carbon nanotubes, buckyballs, uh, nanowires, that they start listing individual nanomaterials or, you know, pesticides and herbicides might be an emerging issue, but you can start writing individual uh, pesticides, glyphosate, whatever it happens to be. Um, so when I say a couple hundred, it really depends on how you count them. Sure. Okay. Well, anyway, it was uh, it was interesting to me because a lot of what I did in in my career was to to identify emerging issues to write about for litigation news and and, and things like that. So when I saw your title, I thought, okay, well, this is somebody who has sort of sort of a parallel life to what what I was leading. Um, so so the subject and and uh, so the subject today uh, is based on uh, an article that you've you've prepared 
for the journal on emerging issues in litigation uh, titled the, the Age of Disparagement, How Social Media Has Refueled the Smear. So that's uh, the subject is around how social media has really really expanded anybody's ability to smear or disparage or ridicule someone else either uh, out of you know maliciously or just for fun but but real disparagement is is a serious and and damaging thing uh, a person's reputation can mean can mean everything to their livelihood or their well-being um, so in your article you shared some interesting statistics uh, uh, can you share can you highlight a couple of those for us sure i'd be glad to if you just do a quick Wikipedia search. There are now 198 active social media websites. And, you know, they vary from, from the very large TikTok, uh, Facebook, whatever it is, to the, to the rather obscure. But if you go back to the year 2000, 20 years ago, there were only 13 really rather small, obscure ones that I had never even heard of. The first one began operation in 1996. Now, I know for young people that seems like a lifetime ago, but, but when you've been in the business as long as I have, that's really not that long ago. Today, 28% of American adults admit to being online constantly. And for teens, that number jumps up to 48% that are online constantly. And 71% of teens have multiple social media platforms uh, they usually average about seven social media platforms. So there's tons of exposure. If you just look at texts, texts sent by in the U.S., over almost 2.3 trillion texts a year are sent annually. It's incredible how this has become a way of life for us. Yeah, and I do notice, too, with younger generations, it's like just when I think I'm caught up, with how we're all communicating, uh, I'm not. Like, you know, I, I found at some point, well, my kids are in their 20s. They don't send email ever. <laughs> it's rare. You have, to, you have to send them a text to tell them you sent them an email. <laughs> so, um, and, then, and then I was communicating with a niece, on, uh, and I, I said, well, you know, did you see my, my post on Facebook? And she said, well, no, I don't really check it off that often. I really only am on Facebook to stay in touch with old people. <laughs> so, That's right. That's so, right. Yeah, so it seems to change rapidly. Yes, it does. And try and get, my, my daughters are also in their 20s, and try and get them to make a phone call, like <laughs> actually call someone. Right. They feel very awkward about it. That's right. And also kids in, that, in the generation sometimes are um, – I think sometimes it can be a little bit of a hindrance uh, because they're not used to necessarily communication. They're expecting to find everything, the answer is right online. Um, and sometimes, yeah. you, sometimes you just have to pick up the phone and call that person. So Let me mention one more thing that I neglected. Um, sure. There are now almost 32 million bloggers in the United States. And these bloggers are writing short pieces on any number of things. Once twice a week. So again, millions of blogs every week are being posted on the internet. Just an incredible volume uh, of stuff uh, coming at us constantly. Um, I don't know. I don't know that I've gotten really good at it, but I just feel like I'm, I'm bombarded and I'm sure somebody out there has figured out how to really organize that. But 
if it's not coming at you, you know, it's coming at you through through email. I, I shudder now whenever somebody puts up a, something and says, oh, sign up for our newsletter. I'm like, no, please no. <laughs> I've got, I don't know how much more. Well, I'm afraid I'm guilty as well. I, I post, uh, I'm rather an avid poster on LinkedIn just on emerging issues uh, that is that are facing the property casualty insurance industry. But, right. you know, sometimes it's one a day, sometimes it's, Eight a day it just depends on what happens to hit on that particular day. Yeah, yeah, I, I see that as a little different because when I purposely go to LinkedIn, I want to see what's on there. So when I see your posts there, you're not posting uh, just random anything. You, you, you know, there, there's meaning, and for someone like me who's watching emerging issues, your posts are are valuable. Um, a lot of posts on LinkedIn sometimes they're just, hey, look at me. Uh, look at my company or whatever, but or I got an award, but um, but uh, but but no. I, as a news source, uh, I like that there are other people who are looking at things that I'm looking at and then posting meaningful posts. But plus, I'm not getting. Uh, plus, LinkedIn isn't calling me every ten minutes on a robocall. I mean, I can just go and and okay. Now I'm now I'm going to go check my LinkedIn. So, and the thing is, for the insurance industry, for the insurance industry, I just wonder whether we're paying attention to all that. Yeah, how so? In like in the in the kind of in the kinds of risk that it presents, you mean? Yes, the underwriting and the exposure analysis. So if you have if if somebody is posting something defamatory and let's say under personal line, so it's an individual, uh, maybe even a teenager who's posting something defamatory online, people will have homeowners coverage. Now homeowners coverage generally does not include what we call personal injury where where defamation and disparagement, uh, published defamation and disparagement would be covered. But some, especially high-end homeowners policies, they do throw it in. And any homeowner can get coverage for personal injury for for very little cost. I mean, I'm talking about you can get full limits coverage for 25 bucks or so. Mm-hmm. So it, any homeowners carrier is willing to do that. And then, of course, if you have a personal umbrella policy, that that personal injury is covered in a personal umbrella policy. And even if you don't have it in your homeowner's policy, your personal umbrella will then drop down and provide coverage from dollar one. So it is an exposure under personal lines that people are seeing. Of course, it's also covered for businesses under general liability policies and commercial umbrella policies as well. So let's go back to, to the personal lines, the homeowners and personal umbrella. A lot of the changes that insurers have made over the last decade, let's say, is for ease of use for the public, easy to get a quote, fast to get a quote. That means fewer application questions asked. So I just wonder if if they're missing the boat on not really underwriting to this exposure. And again, there's not a whole lot of data currently available. So if they're looking backwards, they're not seeing any issue. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, I've spent 33 years trying to get the insurance industry to look a little bit more forward. Don't get me wrong. There's really good reasons to look backward. Let me see your last, if you're a a treaty underwriter, let's see your last 10 years of loss history. If you're an individual risk underwriter, you might want to see their last three to five years of loss history. Um, Actuaries have made a living looking backwards and, and coming up with things. But we don't spend a whole lot of time looking forward if there's, because there's no data. Right. Yeah, I guess there are some examples, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, where um, looking forward, not looking forward as much hurt the industry. 
Um, I don't know if I have good examples. I mean, no one would have seen asbestos coming along, um, I don't think. Uh, and in climate change, I know the insurance industry has, I've seen articles and papers uh, watching that as well. Um, are there examples that, that uh, where the insurance industry may have been caught off guard because it didn't look forward? Sure. I mean, if you look at recently, well, I'll give you a couple from recently. They're called the GOT Trio. They are glyphosate, opioids, and talc, asbestos and talc, talcum powder. We've seen this coming. There have been studies, studies, studies. Um, and, of course, there's always denials by the companies. Um, we saw that with lead. Again, until there's actually litigation, maybe some insurance companies start paying attention when there's litigation. But it's not until there's that significant pop, that $10 million verdict or that million-dollar loss that uh, it seems the industry starts to pay attention. You went through and found some, some cases that uh, where, where, where there were such things, like uh, – so, so obviously, when somebody's defamed, one civil way to address it, a civil way anyway, is through litigation. But um, so, w- what types of claimants have you seen that are bringing suit? Who who are they suing? Um, how are they doing in court? When litigation occurs against an individual, it is almost it is very frequently settled out of court, and many of those settlements can be on the small side, twenty five thousand dollars, not including any any defense costs for attorneys if you have them, but oftentimes are settled out of court. And of course, those terms remain confidential. So it's very hard to, to get a total picture of what's being paid out for these things. Plus, just because someone is sued for defamation, if they don't have personal injury coverage, they don't have a personal umbrella policy, it's not an issue for the insurance industry anyway. It's only when they do have that coverage that it would be an issue for the insurance industry. But that said, once it gets to court, uh, juries have been willing to uh, award significant damages for defamation and disparagement. We have a, a jury in Nevada that awarded a victim $38.3 million. This was a business owner, and he uh, was defamed online for four years in a row. They were asserting that he is a, his business was a scam, a Ponzi scheme, a shell game. The jury awarded us $38 million. Gosh. A Florida woman won $11.3 million over online defamation. Uh, She had a business where she was uh, providing services for folks, and uh, somebody described her online as a crook, a con con artist, and a fraud. Juries are willing to uh, award individuals significant amount of money should they be defamed or disparaged. Now, part of the issue is when you get to the insurance coverage piece, personal injury is covered on a per- offense basis. And usually offense is not a defined term, which of course is going to leave it up to courts to determine. If you have a child in, in middle school who is being defamed, cyberbullied by kids in the school, and they're saying things about her every day, once a week, for months, for two or three years while they're in middle school, how many offenses is that going to be? Now, there was an actual case where a student's sister was defaming that student's, one of his teachers, because I guess the teacher wasn't giving the kid a good grade. They posted nine things online within three weeks. The teacher found out about it and sued. Now, the court said that two of those comments did not rise to the level of defamation, but the other seven did, and that he was leaning towards determining that they were seven separate occurrences. So 
if they did have coverage under their, let's say they had a $300,000 homeowner's policy, they were looking at potentially a $2.1 million loss. So the numbers can be big. So where do you see the most risk for businesses? Businesses are formed by just groups of people um, at all levels of education and sophistication. Businesses themselves are deploying blogs and blogs and and uh, and they're communicating by text, as you, as you point out. Do you have any words of caution for CEOs, general counsels, and, and risk managers? Yeah, be careful what you put in writing. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll give you just two quick examples. Uh, there was a long-term employee, and that employee was being terminated. The president of the company sent an email to fewer than 10% of their total employees and implying that they were looking into embezzlement and using inappropriate language by this employee. The the employee, of course, got the emails and sued for defamation and was awarded almost $5 million. There was another health system and a uh, hospital who was being sued by a doctor for a number of things, wrongful termination, defamation, sexual harassment, and was awarded a huge amount of money, $167 million. But the interesting part, at least for this discussion, was that almost $25 million was for defamation. Yeah, that, that, that'll get somebody's attention. So as technology advances, sometimes it gets out ahead of the law, obviously, and sometimes ahead, as, as we're discussing, sometimes it gets out ahead of insurance policies. What do you see as the next source of risk relating to social media disparagement? You mentioned... You mentioned something that has to do with uh, editing video. There's a new technology now called deep fakes. And these deep fakes, they can take, uh, and they've done it with former President Obama, they take a video of, of his, of a speech he gave. And using a computer, you can change the words using his voice and change the mouth movements in the video to make it look like he's saying something that he did not say. That's going to end up resulting in litigation as well. Also, the fact that there are now social influencers all over the Internet, basically, or often anyway, young people who are basically hawking various products. And this has already resulted in some of these individual influencers being named in litigation that's aimed at e-cigarettes and vaping fluids. Mm-hmm. Because they're there saying, you know, they're, they're the best things in sliced bread, and people have gotten sick and died, and now even they are being named as defendants as well as the manufacturers and the distributors and the retailers. And yeah, you see that with, uh, with, with even in, in, uh, in politics, you'll get extreme left or right. Um, I guess, I don't know if they call themselves influencers. <laughs> Some people call them trolls, but they'll be out there. <laughs> Pundits? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, or or pundits. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they're just different kinds of uh, different kinds of uh, people out there influencing. But um, you know, in fact, you mentioned this thing about deepfakes. I'm pretty sure I just saw an app that made it very easy to do exactly what you're saying. Um, yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, yeah. You've seen the really crude ones, which are which are crude. They're comical because they're so crude. Where you can take a music video and you can take a friend of yours' face and have them in the video dancing. It's all very funny and and mm-hmm. cute and cute and everything. But when it's uh, 
But when you've got somebody saying that something something just completely heinous and they never said it, then it becomes, uh, I don't know, feels feels criminal to me. But Yes, but people, a certain percentage of the population will believe it. And that person's reputation is then damaged. To the untrained eye, um, these things look perfectly legitimate. So I see right here, I see it right on the Internet. <laughs> it says it. And everything on the Internet is true. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, yeah. I, a friend of mine just told me the other day that the, I was arguing with a friend, and, and she, she showed the friend she was backing up her own argument by saying, here, look at these statistics. And the person said, uh, well, I didn't see that on television, so therefore, <laughs> so, okay, it's not valid. Here's a, here's a general thought. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the insurance industry, it serves a purpose that I'd never used to think about um, before. The industry itself can promote societal change and, and incentivize safer behavior. Since, since the carriers are all about reducing claims, um, I'm thinking about things like cyber policies that might that require security audits uh, or the under, in their underwriting process, they may require security audits or life insurance policies that require medical checkups. You know, smokers pay more than non-smokers. And I think about things mm-hmm. like I think about things like seat belts and airbags and backup cameras, uh, homes that can stand up to hurt. Oh, yeah. I believe the insurance industry, at least in part, uh, pushed for those those kinds of changes. And, and is that is that accurate? Absolutely, absolutely, mm-hmm. yes, absolutely accurate. And and I mean, the insurance industry takes great pride in in some of that stuff you mentioned. You know, we do the same thing in other ways. I mean, if you're buying a house on an island off of North Carolina and you're trying to get flood insurance, it's going to cost significantly more than if you were buying one in the middle of North Carolina. We push through safety measures. We do underwriting audits. We price according to risk, at least theoretically. Again, I, I think we miss a lot of the emerging issues, but that's that's been a battle I've been waging for a long time. Yeah, no, I think of things like when I got homeowner's insurance, I put in a sump pump and my premium went down. So, um, and then, you know, and then when we had then we had a heavy rain and a hurricane, I was really glad when that sump pump kicked on. Um, so, uh, so. That's what you're insurer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. Do you see the industry doing anything uh, in the social media space around the risk of disparagement? Is that happening or is that something that uh, is not happening yet? I have not seen it happen yet. And again, uh, I would say by by 2018, let's say, there was over $110 million in verdicts and known settlements for the personal line side, uh, people suing individuals. Mm-hmm. And there were multiples of that on the commercial side where entities were suing businesses. So hundreds of millions of dollars, if not north of a billion dollars have already gone in verdicts and settlements. Now, again, not all of those may have been covered by the insurance industry, but I don't think anyone is anyone in the insurance industry is tracking how much is being paid out in defamation and disparagement claims. And again, cyberbullying, that's a subset of defamation and disparagement, because if you're cyberbullying someone, you're not saying very kind things about them, obviously. Right. So that's just a subset of this whole thing. You tried to uh, put some some numbers. You were doing some guesstimating around about how many, how much libel or slander might be taking place through all these tweets. Um, so you know, you, you said you couldn't find anything reliable. So you you kind of put together some some rough numbers. Yeah, you know, I haven't been able to find any reliable information about 
how many posts, tweets, texts, etc., might indeed be defamatory or disparaging in nature. But so if you just take one tenth of one percent, if you think that many might be libelous or uh, defamatory in nature, that would equal over 840,000 libelous blog posts, as well as another 940,000 libelous comments made by third parties who are joining in and commenting on that blog post. But there would be another 2.3 billion texts that would be libelous annually. So the numbers get huge very quickly. And I'm not wedded to this one-tenth of one percent. Again, I can't find any information, so let's assume that's way off. So, so let's cut it in half. The exposure is still huge. Yeah, yeah, massive. And I mean, it could be simple as something as simple as King Dollar Plumbing. And King Dollar Plumbing posts on his blog that Hagee Plumbing, that I'm getting a lot of work because Hagee Plumbing doesn't know what the heck they're doing, so they're giving up on him and calling me, and I'm going in and fixing <laughs> the messes that he's made and blah, blah, blah. That's going to be disparaging of that of Mr. Hagee's plumbing business. His business goes down the tubes. He's going to sue. Goes down the tubes. No pun intended. I'm also I'm also trying to imagine <laughs> I was thinking back at my uh, my uh, handiwork. I'm, I'm, the thought of Hagee Plumbing. I think the way you describe it would be pretty. Uh, that's pretty accurate. Um, <laughs> it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be a very good. Uh, wouldn't be a very good business. And then you and then you get people who customers who then they retweet and repost and and things just just amplify. People have gotten very used to using the internet as a sounding board. Yeah, they vent their frustrations. So historically, you know, there were defamation claims. I don't know if those claims were ever a big number. You mean pre-internet? Pre-internet, yeah. You mean pre-internet? Yeah. The insurance industry was always willing to cover defamation and disparagement, published defamation and disparagement, because there were so few claims. Mm -hmm. And think about it. Before the year 2000, let's say, I mean, like I said, there was a few social media sites as of 1996, but not very many at all. But before 2000, hardly anybody was published. You might write an article for a journal or a newspaper, or you, you might write a book. But those things generally had an editor who looked through it, who read through it, to make sure that there were no defamation or disparagement allegations made against the publication, the newspaper or the journal, or the book publishing company or anybody else. So you had the benefit of an editor's eye reading through it. And then, of course, they would say, we'd like you to change this or change that. Today, we're all published with no editor looking over our shoulder at all. Yeah, it really has changed what the definition of published means, I would assume. Well, published is not a defined term in most insurance policies, that's for sure. But if you look just Again, looking at Merriam-Webster's dictionary, to publish is to make generally known, to disseminate to the public, to produce for distribution. I would think that there would be many judges who would feel that if you're posting things online or on social media that you have disseminated that information to the public. That that's, that kind of takes us through everything. Is there anything else that you wanted to address, Charlie? Any final thoughts? You know, we'll see what the insurance industry does. Um, there's no shortage of plaintiff's attorneys who are, who are looking for business. So, you know, while 
even if it tops a billion dollars to date between both personal lines and commercial lines, um, that's not tragic for the insurance industry, but if this litigation balloons, you, you'll see them paying more attention. I'm sure they will. Well, look, thank you for spending the time on this, and uh, and I uh, learned a lot, and I look forward to talking to you again on another subject. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate you having me. That's it for my conversation with Charlie Kingdollar, former career-long vice president and emerging issues officer at General Reinsurance. Thanks to Charlie for taking the time to write the article. Quote, the age of disparagement, how social media has refueled the smear. End quote. Uh, I like that title. It's possible I helped him with it. Uh, that'll be coming out in the inaugural issue of the Journal on Emerging Issues and Litigation. That's a collaboration between, or among, or whatever, uh, my company, HB, and Fastcase, and Lost Street Media. I'm just going to throw Docket Alarm in there, too, since they're part of that group. So, uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. So, I say so a lot, and I'm, I'm finding that annoying. This is Tom Hagee with HB Litigation Conferences. Thanks for listening, and hope to catch you next time.